Jones family, how are we doing today? How are we doing? All right. Hey, man. One, I want to uh, greet some people right now. Good, mo- good morning to our online campus. We are so glad you're with us. Whether you are down the street or around the world, we're just stoked you're with us. Thank you for being, being the church. Also, Tulare Street. What's up to my people at Tulare Street? Old LA, that's right. Old Town Campus, OTC, good morning to you guys. Um, up in Novato, Pastor Mike and Rochelle are up there right now. Um, in Marin County, God bless you guys. And over in the Message ven- right now, we have, a, we have a service that's in the venue. It's called The Message. And uh, people just set up on tables, and there's no music. They just have The Message, right? It's simple. So anyways, good morning to you guys, too. We're so glad you're with us. Guys, um, I have a guest for you, and I, I, one, I, I want to prepare you. Okay, so everyone buckle up, because here's the deal. You, those of you that are Bible nerds, you're going to get a meal today, all right? Those of you that are like, dance, monkey boy, entertain me. Listen, <laughs> you're going to need to turn your brain on today and follow, because this is a deep teaching, and it's powerful. Um, I knew it was going to be good, but then I heard it at 9 o'clock, and I was like, oh, snap. So I'm going to introduce someone who is very special to me. Um, you know, in your life as a believer, there's, you know, a handful of people that kind of show you the way, if that makes sense. Um, I, th- I think of my youth pastor when I was um, early in my faith. I had another pastor named, named Dan Greider who showed me how to be a pastor and then I planted a church, and he moved across country. And I was kind of like, you know, didn't have, I didn't know who to look to or what to do. And um, Hal Seed pastored a large church in Oceanside called New Song Church. And he took me under his wing, showed me some things. Um, he was a leader that I really looked up to and um, was very generous with his time and just generous with all of his knowledge and passed on to me. And I'm eternally grateful to this man, and I'm super excited that I get to share him with you today. Um, you get to meet someone that helped shape me as a pastor. Um, he pastors New Song Church in Oceanside, California, a very significant church in our country. Um, you may not know this, but um, some of the largest Christian companies like Outreach Marketing, CCB, come out of New Song Church, this church in Oceanside that you know most people don't know about. But it, this church has had an incredible kingdom impact. Um, uh, about a decade ago, they had they made a movie. It was put out by Sony called "The Save a Life." Um, 23,000 people have said yes to Jesus under this man's ministry in the last 30 years at New Song Church. Um, He's a beast. Last night we had dinner for like three hours, and I I still learn things from him. I also learned while he was in his doctoral program, he studied under the great Dallas Willard. So this guy is a beast. Please give a Clovis Hills welcome to Dr. Halseed. You're very kind, my friend. (laughs) Well... It's good to be with you all and uh, lower your expectations. Uh, I love Sean, and uh, I'm delighted to say that we're at a stage where I'm learning from him. also love Marlena. She was part of our college group when, uh, well, years ago when she was in college. I, I showed up here and thought, you know, I know one guy, well, and Kelly, and uh, he was doing something, and she greeted me, so I kind of felt like I was home. It's a delight to be with you. You ready to do some learning today? 
Uh, Sean, when he came and spoke at New Song about a year ago, preached out of Luke 15. So I thought, well, maybe I should do something close to that because Luke's my favorite book. So I thought, well, should I go with 14 or 16? And I prayed about it, and I realized I'm up in the valley. My wife uh, grew up uh, on a ranch in Modesto, and so I know a little about the valley. So I thought, well, maybe I should take Luke 16 because it's about a farmer. Any farmers in the room? Yeah, so actually, there's good for you. Okay, this is your, your passage here. Open a Bible, if you will, to Luke chapter 16. I got to warn you that this is maybe not the most confusing chapter in the New Testament, but the first 50 times I read it, it was confusing to me. So this is a dangerous passage because it'll change your life if you understand it, but also it's a little bit confusing, which is what I think Sean was referring to here. Uh, we're going to go to school a little bit, learn, learn some stuff about Middle Eastern culture. So if you're ready to do that, would you pray this out loud after me? Lord Jesus, speak to me. Amen. All right, Luke, 15, Luke 16, uh, Jesus is about three or four weeks from going to the cross. He's been traveling from the north of Israel, uh, letting his disciples know clearly he's going to the cross, and he's not going to be with them much longer. He's training them to take over. There are women with them. So he's teaching a group of men and women about how to live their lives once he's in heaven. This is the story of the shrewd manager, but I think we'll see in it that it's really the story of the amazing master. You know, every story in the Bible is a story about God, right? So the shrewd manager really is just the object of the story. The amazing master is the subject of the story. Here it is. Jesus, Luke 16, 1, told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in, and he asked him, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, uh-oh, what shall I do? My master is taking away my job. I'm too, uh, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager, because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, Jesus said, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, this is a confusing story, wouldn't you agree? I mean, on first read, you think, is Jesus complimenting this guy because he cooked the books? Is he, is he telling us we should be dishonest in our business dealings? What's going on in this story? Well, I want you, if you will, for the next 20, 30 minutes or whatever, to take off uh, your American hat and put on a Middle Eastern hat. This is a story Jesus told to first century Jewish people living in the Middle East. They think a little differently. Uh, their values are slightly different. 
and their money system is different, and that's going to be important. So let's unpack the story. Let's acknowledge that it's a made-up story. This didn't really happen in history. Jesus is telling his followers a story to make a point, to teach them how to live. Biblical scholars call it, again, the parable of the shrewd manager, but it's really the parable of the amazing master. To understand it fully, you need to understand a couple things about how Middle Easterners think. Uh, By the title, you'd you'd think that the manager was the hero, but he's not. Jesus is the hero, and God the Father is the hero. Now, if you think like a literary agent, you, you realize there are four scenes to this story. Jesus is a master storyteller, and he's building towards an amazing climax. Scene number one, you can write this down, is in the master's office. Now, this is where the scoundrel gets word that he's being let go, downsized. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Scene two is from the master's office on the way to get the books, the accounting books. Massive thinking takes place inside the head of the manager as he's heading to get the books. This is his only hope. And he's a smart guy, and he figures it out. Scene three is with the books in the manager's office there. He's hatched a plan, and it's got to work, or he's in jail. And he figures it out, and it all works out for him. And then scene four is back in the master's office uh, where... The good stuff is revealed. Fair enough? Y'all still with me? That's the schooling part of it here. Let's unpack this thing. In the master's office, the scene has three characters in it. Two of them are present. The the other group is kind of in the background looming, but the two characters are there is the master. He's a wealthy Middle Eastern landowner. Jesus calls him a rich man and tells us that people in the area respect him so much that they actually rat out the regional manager. That's not normal. Uh, Normally, people in the Middle East hated their absentee landlords, but Jesus' words are, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. That tells us that the people of the land liked the master more than they liked the manager, which didn't happen very often. And when you look at this master, he's a master. He is calm and gracious. He doesn't scold or berate or threaten. He doesn't demand repayment. He doesn't put the manager in jail. All of these are within his rights. This is an impressive guy by his restraint. The second character is the manager. He's the agent, a middleman, a property manager, and asset manager, holding on to things on behalf of the master that don't belong to him himself. He's a rascal. He's been cooking the books to his own advantage. And according to the the Mishnah, there are uh, three types of managers in the ancient Near East. In Hebrew, this guy would have been called a shalua. And I just bring that up because I think it's a cool-sounding word. Can you say shalua? You can, around the water cooler tomorrow at work, you can say, I learned about a shalua yesterday at church. Want to come with me next week? Uh, Shalua was an educated man who worked all of his life with people and contracts and records. This guy's an agent hired by the master to negotiate and administer land contracts between the master and the peasants who work the land. 
If you remember from your uh, history class, world history in, in high school, in about 1500, the Ottoman Turks came into the area, invaded, took over, uh, and then they ruled over all these people. They generally lived as absentee landlords, but they divided up all the property, left the people on the land, and then taxed them to death. So the Turks said, it's my land, and you're going to work it, and you'll give me a portion. That's how it's going to work. The peasants hated the landowners because they exploited them, bled them dry, and usually didn't even live in the area. Dr. Ken Bailey, who lived in this area for over 50 years, uh, writes, the Turkish landowner is vividly remembered as a corrupt, ruthless, and indifferent person who, who uh, didn't care about the sufferings of his uh, renters. Uh, but this scene doesn't picture a landowner that way. At the beginning, someone cares enough to tell this master, report the actions of this dishonest steward. The master, in this story, is clearly part of the community. The wealthy, distant, foreign, ruthless landowner is not this man, is not in this parable. And the third group, as I alluded to, is the group that's not present, but we understand that they're completely influenced by this. They're the farmers. They're the sharecroppers. They're the debtors who are influenced by everything these other two men do. It's the peasants that have blown the whistle on the shrewd manager. Well, that's the setup for the scene. The action in scene one takes place in two sentences. The first sentence is a simple one. The master says to the, the manager, what's this I hear about you? Master's thought very carefully about this. He doesn't want to say, I have heard that you have been ripping me off in this way, that way, and the other way. <laughs> the master wants the manager to spill the beans. But the manager doesn't spill the beans because just as the master doesn't know all that the manager has done, the manager doesn't know what the master knows about what he's done. Following this? So, the expected answer to this is silence. He's not going to implicate himself for anything. What's this I hear about you? The manager doesn't respond. The expected answer is silence, and the received answer is silence. This is a shrewd manager. He doesn't want to spill the beans and get himself into any more trouble than he's already in. So, he stays quiet. So, the master delivers his second sentence. This is his dismissal. You can no longer be manager, he says. Translated, you're done, you're fired, here's your pink slip, don't let the door hit, hit you on the way out. At this point, the listeners would expect to hear the manager say something. He's losing his job, he's losing his livelihood. This would be the time for him to debate or argue or blame or, or uh, plead ignorance or, or explain that it was just an oversight and apologize. They would expect debate or argument, but... Again, out of the manager's mouth comes nothing, just silence. Silence is a supreme value in the Middle East. Uh, this guy, by saying nothing, is affirming four things. One, I'm guilty, because <laughs> he's not arguing. Two, the master knows I'm guilty. <laughs> not trying to persuade him that I'm not. Uh, three, the master expects obedience, and disobedience is going to bring judgment. And I know I can't get my job back, so I'm not going to offer excuses. Well, this shrewd manager doesn't dwell on what's in the past. 
he is immediately thinking about his future and realizes he has none. The master has told him he's fired, uh, so he, he turns to go get the books. That's what a manager does when you're told to give account. You go get the books. And on his way out the door, scene two begins, and his mind is whirling. He is thinking, what can I do now? What can I do now? What can I do now? And as the door clicks behind him, he thinks, well, at least he didn't throw me in jail. And then he thinks, you know, in fact, he didn't even scold me. He just released me. He thinks, that master is a merciful man. He, he's pretty gracious. These are his thoughts on his way to get the books. The master has said, give an account, and that's how he's going to give his account. He keeps records like all Middle Easterners do. Uh, he's fired. He's done. Uh, he's got no 30-day severance. He's got one task, and that's to bring the books to the master. He holds them for a minute, hatching his plan. On his way, he says, according to Jesus, what shall I do now? My master's taken my job away. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So he's walking and whirling and walking and whirling, and the, the plan hatches. He, he clarifies the problem. Who's going to hire me? And the answer is nobody. These peasants don't like me. They turned me in. Everybody hates me. Nobody likes me. And I'm too proud to dig for worms, Right? So he thinks, and he thinks, and he thinks, and he thinks, and he thinks. And he's got like two minutes and 30 seconds before he's in the room, and, and the clock is ticking, and it occurs to him that the only resource he has is what he knows about the master. Not in, not, he has nothing in himself, There's nothing in him that can redeem this situation. It's all about the master. His solution is, I'm going to trust the master's mercy. Here's how the plan hatches. I know what I'll do, he says. I'll stake my entire fortune on, or for, entire future on him. And scene three reveals how he does that. He gets to his office. He says to the servant at the door, go summon all the, the landowners, all the, all the farmers, all the debtors. His plan is predicated on two assumptions. Uh, one of them is that they think he still has authority. If not, they're not going to come. The other assumption is that because they think he has authority, he is acting on the master's behalf. Again, I'll just ask, we, we all still here? We're going to have fun at the, the water cooler tomorrow morning. The peasants don't know he's been fired, but he's got to act fast because if somebody walks through the door and says, hey, I heard you were let go. All of his power, all of his opportunity is in the past, and he's done. This won't work. So when the first peasant comes through the door, he says to him, how much does, do you owe my master? And of course, this peasant knows exactly what his rent is worth. He says, well, uh, 900 gallons of olive oil. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450 the next guy comes through the door and he says to him, how much do you owe my master? This guy knows exactly what he owes. He says, I owe a thousand bushels of wheat. Take your bill and make it 800. Now for us, we go, those are weird numbers. 900, 450, 1,000, 800. But if you were a Middle Eastern businessman, you would know the value of wheat and olive oil and you'd know that this manager has just reduced both of their bills by 500 denarii. This is a 
windfall for every single one of them. The manager is not thinking about percentages or any of that sort of thing. He's thinking speed. I'm just writing bills down, and you'll see why in just a minute. Uh, the master, uh, the, the manager knows that for this to work, the peasants all have to think that the manager approved this debt reduction. And you can just imagine them lining up, smiling, wow, I hit the jackpot today. I hit the mother low. The lottery just came in. And one by one, lightning fast, he pulls it off. Uh, this is his great betting the farm moment. The manager's risking everything on the fact that the man, the ma, <laughs> sorry, I just washed my tongue and I can't do a thing with it. Uh, that the master is gracious and merciful. If he's not, it's all blown and it's Jewish Folsom prison. But every farmer is astounded by, by this bill reduction. This has never happened in the history of anyone in the Middle East. And the manager is only too happy to explain to them how the rent reduction came about. Well, he says, <laughs> I caught the old man in a good mood today, and so everything just came together. I've been working on this for, for quite some time, but today was the opportunity. I've been wanting to do something for you for a long time, and here it is. He's making it clear that the rent reduction came from the master, but it was his idea. How do the villagers respond? How would you respond if this afternoon you got a call from the guy who sold you the last car you bought, and he says, hey, did you get the check in the mail? What check? Well. I'm in good with the manufacturer, so I convinced them to give you a $10,000 rebate on your car. Only this isn't a $10,000 rebate. 500 denarii are the equivalent of a year and a half of pay. So think more like $100,000. The evidence of what has taken place is already going on in the streets by the time scene four starts, which is back in the master's office. The manager brings the books, replete with wet ink. The, the master can see exactly what's happened. Oh, and he can hear it from outside his door because they're singing for he's a jolly good fellow. They're going nuts in the street. Party poppers are going off. The master's no dummy. He can hear what's going on. He can see what the manager's done. He's got two options. He can go outside and explain to all of the debtors that this was just a mistake, that the manager fooled them all, but they still owe him every penny that they did the day before. How do you think that'll go over? Or he can keep silent and ex accept the praise. He can, think that he, they, he can have them think that he really is a jolly good fellow. So he reflects, reputation or money? Reputation or money? For a man of character in the Middle East, it's a no-brainer. He turns to the, the manager and says, shrewd move. Shrewd move. You are a rascal, but a really smart rascal. This is the story that Jesus is telling us, and it really would make sense in a Middle Eastern context. Middle Easterners uh, tell the story of a time when a uh, condemned murderer uh, during the days of the famous Sultan Saladin uh, got let off scot-free because the killer repeatedly from his cage 
shouted, I want to see the sultan, I want to see the sultan, I want to see the sultan. And finally, Saladin let him see him. And he didn't cry out for innocence. He cried out, oh, gracious sultan, my sins are great, but the mercy of the sultan is greater. And Saladin let him off. This really happened in history. In fact, in, in uh, the 1960s, uh, the wife of a condemned spy in the nation of Jordan when she learned that her husband was about to be executed, waited outside King Hussein's palace, and when he came out in his, in his uh, motorcade, she stepped in front of the car and threw herself in, at his mercy. She did not plead that her husband was innocent. She appealed to the mercy of the king, and this Jordanian king, knowing how a Middle Eastern nobleman must act, released the spy. Now, I know we could debate this. No U.S. president would ever, or for that matter, could ever grant such clemency, but a Middle Eastern monarch can and did. The Bible says a good name is more desirous than silver or gold, and Middle Easterners believe that. So we call this story what? The parable of the shrewd manager, but who's it really about? This is about the master. The master who is gracious and merciful and does what people could never imagine could be done. The story asks the question, the manager, will he think about his situation? Will, will he make the most of his opportunity? He's only got one, and it's going to last for only a little while. While he's got the assets at his disposal, they're not his, but while he has hold of them, will he squander them or will he use them for his future benefit? Jesus is saying to us the shrewd move is to trust the master, and the shrewd move is to bet the farm on his graciousness and mercy, and the shrewd move is to use whatever you've been temporarily entrusted with for his good and yours forever. His punchline to the story, Luke 16, 9, is, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves who will welcome you into eternal dwelling places. Use worldly wealth to gain friends who will welcome you into heavenly places, who will, who will one day say to you, wow, thanks, I'm here in part because of you. You just imagine that for a second. You're wandering around heaven three, four, five, six days, 10, 12, 15 years, whatever it is. Guy walks up to you. Hey, you remember when you? Thanks. I'm here in part because of you. But Jesus is saying to us, I think, you know, once we cross over, it's not going to really matter how big your house was, your farm was, your car was, your bank account was. Once you've left it behind, it's behind. You're never getting it back. And it's only yours temporarily, and it's not really yours. It belongs to the master. He's just loaned it to you. Use worldly wealth to gain friends who will welcome you into eternal dwelling places. How many of you like football? So what happens at the end of a big game? What do the players do, the coach? Yeah, Gatorade. Uh, when I was about nine, ten years old, my mom enrolled me on the YMCA swim team of Santa Barbara, and I was a rookie swimmer. I didn't know much about it. I knew how to dive in the pool and swim across. Uh, but at the end of the season, it turned out we had had some pretty good athletes on that team, so we actually won the Southern California YMCA championship. 
I remember it clearly because on the drive home, uh, you know, swimmers are always skinny. You know, we, we got not only dinner, but massive amounts of ice cream. And afterwards, just before we got in our cars, or our parents' cars, uh, the coach said, hey, we're going to have one more practice. It's going to be tomorrow at the same time. Uh, be there on time. So, you know, mom brought me over to the pool, and I suited up and thought this is kind of weird because we, you know, we're not practicing anymore. The season's over. Uh, but then the coach came on the, on the deck, and uh, as he's starting to talk to us, four or five guys lined up behind him, big guys, well, older guys. And they started pushing him. I'm this direction, the pool's that direction. They started pushing him towards me. And uh, he, he quickly, realizing what, he, what was going on, took his wallet out of his pocket, threw it as far as he could on the pool deck so it didn't get wet. Then he took his watch off and pleaded with someone to put it, put it on the uh, diving board so it wouldn't get wet. And then, uh, knowing that this was inevitable, he let the guys push him. And uh, I remember because I'm, well, I guess I was this direction here, wasn't I? Uh, I'm one of the little guys in front of him. He grabbed me by the wrist, and he grabbed somebody else here, and he just made his arms as wide as he could and dragged literally as many kids with him into the pool. And I remember it because it was a fabulous moment. I mean, I respected this guy immensely, and he's just beaming as he's bobbing in the water with us. And of course, the big guys had all followed and come into the water too, so it's one big celebration. And when I finally understood this story, I thought, I think that's the picture that Jesus is trying to paint for us. We've only got one life, and, and it's going to be over pretty quick. We've got to spread our arms wide and drag as many people as possible with us into the good place, which, of course, for a swimmer is the pool. And there'll be joy in the presence of heaven. And you want all of your friends there. So if I'm reading the story right, Jesus is saying, be bold and intentional with your temporary re resources. Use what you have to build friendships, to invite people to church, to invite people to Jesus. Be bold and intentional with your money, because it's actually not yours. You're just managing it for the master. It's going to go away someday. Use your worldly wealth to gain friends who will say, hey, welcome to heaven. I'm here in part because of you. Open your arms as wide as you can and drag as many with you as possible. Amen? So here's a question. Who do you know that you'd like to have in heaven with you? Use your worldly wealth, your time, your talents, and your treasures. Spend a little time praying for them. You know, before you talk to your friends about Jesus, you probably ought to talk to Jesus about your friends. Uh, you got a friend who's got a little barrier? When they get sick, maybe, you know, spend a dollar and bring them a bowl of soup just to show them you love them. Maybe mow their lawn or hire somebody to mow their lawn. Uh, spend time with them, and as you do, ask them some spiritual questions. Uh, during the pandemic, my daughter-in-law uh, started hanging out at parks with her kids, and she'd meet other ladies, and her kind of opening question for them is, hey, do you do church? I mean, it's not the first thing she said, but after they'd had some conversation. My generation, we'd say, what church do you attend? which is a little black and white, do you or not, you know, you get, do you do church? Just an open-ended question. There are several people that attend our church now because she started talking about church. That's a good question, don't you think? Or you could say, do you have any spiritual background? You know what? 
Everyone you've ever met has a spiritual background. Use your worldly wealth to gain friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Any realtors in the room or investors? Ah, good for you. So every realtor and every real estate investor knows that when, when you have a property or a piece of land, you want to convert it to the highest and best use because the highest and best use is going to reap the best return. Jesus is saying the highest and best use of your one and only life is to leverage everything that's been temporarily entrusted to you to bring friends into eternity. This is God's word for us this morning. Do you receive it? Let's pray together. So, Father, I don't know for sure, but I'm thinking that in a room this size and with all of our friends joining us online, there's probably enough of us that we've probably got 10,000 relationships, people we know, friends that ought to be in heaven, but for the grace of Christ. And Lord, I pray here and now that you would empower us to be creative, not dishonest, but maybe shrewd in the way we love on people and the way we pray for people. Maybe intentional is the better word, Lord. But would you use every one of us present here to win friends who will say to us, thanks, I'm here in part because of you. I pray this, we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody who agreed said, amen. amen. Hey, thanks for listening. God bless you all. Oh, man. I told you buckle up. You know, as he was telling um, the story of his swim coach, right, bringing the whole team in the pool for the party, who are you going to bring? Um, and I didn't have this last service, but... I got to listen to it twice, so I had, had some more thought on it. It reminded me of, of, of an experience I had. I was a youth pastor, and I was in Denny's. It's a really classy place, right? It's where youth pastors eat. And um, it was like 3 in the morning. Um, we were coming back from a concert, and I had a bunch of students with me. And um, Denny's, after 12 in 12 a.m. is really like the Star Wars cantina. Like there's all kinds of characters in there. And, and uh, our waiter was one of the characters. He was, we were talking to him about, about God. And he was like, oh, I, we were put here by aliens. And he had like some kind of crazy belief. So we were talking to him about it. And um, one, of the, one of the students, it was just a 14-year-old girl. And she asked him like, well, if you're put by, here by aliens, what is your purpose in life? And he kind of turked his head, and then he just, you know, he's an adult, so he's smarter than her. So he fired back at her, and he said, instead of answering the question, what you do is you just divert with another question, right? Because that's how you don't lose arguments. And he goes, well, what is your purpose in life? And it was beautiful. She didn't even blink. She went, to go to heaven and take as many people with me as I can. And he was like, uh, I'm going to go get your drinks. 
And he came back with the drinks and she's like, where are you going to go when you die? She just kept pushing. I was like, oh, snap. And he made some joke and went away again. But that question demands an answer at some point. Because the truth of the matter is, um, I'm just here to encourage everyone in the room, but you're all going to die. We, we are. We're all one day going to stand before a holy God. All of us. Everyone. Regardless of what your belief is here today. And the, the Bible says this. Jesus, the master, he understood something about us. He knew that we owed a debt we could not pay. And I'm not talking about money. The Bible says, for the wages of our sin is death. That's eternal separation from God forever. That, that we're eternally separated from heaven forever. That's the wages of our sin. And the Bible even says that for all have sin, that all of us have sin. So what that means is we all are owed death. But the gracious master, Jesus, what the Bible says is that, that God saw this this debt that we could not pay and he sent Jesus for you and I. And, and what the Bible teaches very clearly is that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, sin-free in your place. And then he died on a cross as a sacrifice because what we deserve is that death, that separation from God. He took it on the cross and then he rose on the third day. And the Bible says that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. And really what that means is at some point in your life, you have to make a decision that I'm with the master. See, most people, they want the master's stuff. They want you know, the benefits of the master, but they don't want the master to be their master. They want the kingdom of God without the king. But what Jesus has said is at a certain point in your life, you have to make that courageous decision to say, you know what, I've been going my way my whole life. And I know my way ends in death. My way ends in separation from God. And Jesus, I need you. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need you to pay the debt I could not pay. And the Bible says it this way in John 1:12. It says, but as many as received him, to those who have believed in his name, he's given them the right to become children of God. Right? So you have to receive Christ. You, you, have, you have to take possession of the gift that God has given you, the, the debt that God has paid, and you have to receive him. And what does that look like? Well, Jesus uses this analogy in Revelation 3.20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone listens, I will come in. That the God of the universe stands at the door of your heart, begging for you to open it so that he can come in and have a relationship with you. He can um, forgive you of your sin and make you into this new person. The person actually he created you to be. See, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and you might have it abundantly, but you will never have that life apart from your creator. So you have to make that courageous decision to say, Jesus, I do need you. In a moment, um, I'm going to give you that opportunity if you've never done that before. You know, if that little 14-year-old girl asked you if you were to die tonight, where would you go? And you made a joke because you didn't want to answer it. Here's what I, I want you to know. 
you can know for sure. You can know for sure. You just have to open your heart and invite Jesus in. It's that little bit of faith is all God asks for. And watch what he does with that, that, that step of faith in your life. So we're going to pray. And if you've never received Christ before, I want to give you that opportunity. Some of you, maybe you did that earlier in your life. And um, this is actually a decision that today you realize I'm coming home to that decision. I'm going to come home to that. That was something someone planted in me as a child or at another point in my life. But I sense Jesus, the master, dragging me to the party, dragging me to the pool. I want to encourage you to, to, to invite him in. Pray that prayer of repentance. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes.